A recent CDC report shocked the nation with news that 19 million Americans each year, including one in four teenage girls, have a sexually transmitted disease. As physicians, we know these diseases are far more common than people think. But are we doing the best job possible in educating and screening our patients appropriately? And how can physicians debunk widespread myths about STDs? You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, practicing pediatrician and author of parenting books. Our guest is Dr. Jill Grimes, a practicing board-certified family physician in Austin, Texas. Dr. Grimes has also been a university health services physician for students and faculty at the University of Texas, and is also the author of a book called Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs. Welcome and thank you for joining us, Dr. Grimes. Thank you for having me, Dr. Shu. We're discussing the physician's role in preventing sexually transmitted diseases. Now, we all know that doctors can play an important role in educating patients, but what are some of the challenges that physicians might face when talking about STDs? Well, I think there's really many challenges, from patient and doctor discomfort regarding the whole topic to time constraints, miscommunication regarding what has actually been tested, to the basic problem of most people simply not believing that they're at risk. But I think the biggest challenge is getting physicians to understand that if they're not diagnosing STDs, they're not looking. Remember that old joke in medical school and residency that you can't have a fever if you don't check a temperature? Well, I think physicians in private practice, and particularly those in upper-class suburbs, often believe that they have a low incidence of these diseases in their practice. If they don't think it's there, they're not going to look for it, but statistics tell us otherwise. Well, knowing some of these statistics that you mentioned about STDs, what impact do you think it might have if more physicians did start to look for these diseases? Oh, I think it would have an enormous impact. For example, 75% of chlamydia infections in females have either no symptoms or just kind of vague symptoms. It's estimated that 40% of untreated chlamydial infections progress to pelvic inflammatory disease, and one in five cases of PID leads to infertility. We had over 1 million cases detected of chlamydia for the first time, and that's with over half of the sexually active women in the United States not being screened. If all the women were screened, we would prevent 60,000 cases of PID, 8,000 cases of chronic pelvic pain, and over 7,000 cases of infertility, and that's annually. Now, as a physician who's committed to STD education in your own practice, what techniques have you found to be especially effective? Well, first of all, you've got to personalize the disease. When people don't think it applies to them, they ignore statistics. Put a face on STD that mirrors that of your patient. We know STDs don't discriminate by age, race, education, or social status. Say something like, so, do you know that many students just like you contract STDs? And as a pediatrician in my office, I might even say even doctors get STDs, and that could be a powerful message. Exactly. Now, as physicians, we know that patients, you know, when you're educating them, patients can have different levels of understanding of medical and even lay terminology. How do you make sure that you and your patient are talking about the same thing when it comes to terms like virginity and oral sex? Well, that's a very good point. You've got to be absolutely specific about your terms. When you say oral sex, for example say, when one partner's mouth is on the other partner's genitals. You need to recognize that when someone says they're a virgin, to one person that means that they only kiss, to another person that means that they can have oral sex and anal sex, but they just don't have regular vaginal sex. Now, are there any key messages or themes that you tend to cover with every patient you see? Well, I always like to combine a little bit of humor and hyperbole, so let me tell you what I say to my patients when I get to the sexual history. I say, look, 
I've got three rules about sexually transmittable diseases. Rule number one, everybody's got disease. Rule number two, everybody lies. Rule number three, young girls are fertile. Then I go back and explain. We know over two-thirds of Americans have evidence of herpes simplex antibodies. We've got 20 million Americans with HPV, 7.4 million Americans with trichomonas each year, and 3 million with pubic lice, and over 1 million with chlamydia. I think these numbers explain when I say everyone's got disease. The second one, everybody lies. This is sort of a stretch. It's partly, they really can be lying just because it's embarrassing, but they also may just be ignorant of having a disease because so many of them are silent. It takes a really mature, confident individual to tell the truth about past infections when they're in a new relationship, especially if it's in the heat of the moment. So again, rule number two, everybody lies. Rule number three, young girls are fertile. I try and encourage everyone to use at least two methods of protection from pregnancy. For example, if they're on the pill, also use condoms. So once you've covered these bases and have gotten some history from a patient, how would a physician determine who needs to be screened? Well, actually, there's a lot of different recommendations from different sources, and it varies by the disease and the sex of the patient. But for me, the bottom line is let's get people tested. If anyone has had a new partner since their last screening, it's time to test them. We also need to let them know specifically what we're testing and what we're not testing. What kind of things might you talk to them about that you're not testing for or are testing for? Well, a lot of people think if they've had a pap smear, if they're a woman, they've been tested for STDs. And while it's true the pap smear can detect HPV, we have to add on a second DNA probe to look for the HPV strains that are high risk. And we have to do completely extra tests for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Usually that's a combined test. And then blood work if you're going to check HIV. Checking for herpes antibodies is a bit more controversial because there's some variability in the test regarding the different types. But if someone tells me they get cold sores in their mouth or they think maybe they had a sore down in their genitals but it's not there anymore, or especially if it recurred, I'm going to check type-specific antibodies for herpes. Syphilis, really, it's much less common, but that's a simple blood test. I also like to just mention to them that we didn't test for trichomonas or pubic lice specifically or any of the hepatitis, just so that they're aware that there are other diseases out there. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Shu. Our guest is Dr. Jill Grimes, a practicing board-certified family physician in Austin, Texas. Dr. Grimes has also been a university health services physician for students and faculty at the University of Texas and is the author of a book called Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs. We're discussing the physician's role in preventing sexually transmitted diseases. Dr. Grimes, in your upcoming book, you address several myths about STDs that patients believe to be true. Why don't we talk about the most common myths you've encountered in practice and what listeners need to know when counseling their patients? First of all, one of the most common myths I hear in my office is that you can't get an STD from oral sex. Now, how would you advise physicians to respond to this myth? Well, actually, probably the single most common new-onset STD that I diagnose in my practice is genital herpes contracted from oral sex. I have to tell you, too, that this is probably also the most distressing to the patients, as many of them picked oral sex instead of vaginal sex, thinking that it was safe or that it maintained their status of being a virgin. I have yet to have a patient report to me that they ever used condoms for oral sex, but this is what we recommend. People just don't believe that they're going to get an STD from oral sex. They don't realize this is a risky behavior. There's several STDs that you can get from oral sex, including chlamydia, gonorrhea, and potentially HIV. 
You kind of touched on this, but another myth is that condoms do protect against transmission of STDs. What would you say to that if people think that condoms are foolproof? Well, they're absolutely not foolproof. First of all, there's no way that they can protect against diseases that are transmitted from direct contact, which would be like HPV, the wart virus, herpes, and syphilis. That is not necessarily transmitted from the skin on the penis, so, and that's the only thing the condom covers. So obviously it can't protect against that. The next thing is that they actually do a pretty good job protecting against diseases transmitted via semen or vaginal fluids like chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, and HIV. But you have to understand, in real-life usage, condoms have a failure rate of about 20%. Some of this is because people use condoms after they've initiated intimacy, so there may be some pre-ejaculate that's occurred already potentially spreading diseases, and then there's about an 11% condom breakage rate as well. I would, however, recommend condoms because I would take an 80% protection rate over zero any day. Now, many patients believe that they would know that they had an STD if they had one, that they couldn't have an STD if they didn't feel sick or have any symptoms. Now, how would you respond to that? Well, this may be the biggest myth that we need to dispel. Many STDs, in fact, probably the majority, are completely silent, especially in men. But that doesn't mean they aren't causing damage. This is a myth that I've seen in many of the younger patients in my practice, that STDs are no big deal, that you can just take antibiotics and then you're cured, end of story. Would you agree to that myth? Absolutely not. You tend to think they're completely invincible. And sadly, this is completely untrue. While a disease like chlamydia can be easily treated and cured if it's diagnosed in a timely fashion, it's usually left undetected because of the vague or silent symptoms that we talked about earlier. In this fashion, it causes over 60,000 cases of pelvic inflammatory disease, 8,000 cases of chronic pelvic pain, 7,000 cases of infertility. These are not things we can fix once it gets to that point. Also, besides the bacterial STDs, obviously half of them are viral STDs, and we have no cure for them. There is no cure for herpes, the wart virus, HIV, or hepatitis. Are there any comments you could make about the HPV vaccine that's available? Yes, I think it is a wonderful vaccine. Physicians need to know that it protects against two things. One is that it protects against 90% of the types of HPV that cause genital warts, and it protects against 70% of the types of HPV that cause cervical cancer. I think if we can have mass immunization of our youth that we're going to see a dramatic decrease in cervical cancer from this vaccine. Now, getting back to some of the myths, one that I hear is that if a girl or woman self-treats herself for what she believes is a yeast infection using over-the-counter medications and her symptoms go away, she may feel that she doesn't need to see a doctor. What do you think? Well, I think that the -the over-the-counter products for yeast infections have led to increased spread of STDs. Most STDs don't have prolonged symptoms. They have symptoms for three to five or maybe seven days, and then they remit. And the problem is now, since there's so much overlap of symptoms between STDs and a simple yeast overgrowth with itching and burning and discharge, anytime someone has those symptoms, frequently now women are just using an over-the-counter yeast product. And again, those symptoms go away, but it's not because the infection is cured. I think particularly if it's someone's first yeast infection, they absolutely need to see a physician. And I, in general, recommend it to all my patients that they don't self-treat without a proper diagnosis. I'd like to thank our guest today, Dr. Jill Grimes. 
She is a practicing board-certified family physician in Austin, Texas, and has been a university health services physician for students and faculty of the University of Texas. She has an upcoming book called Seductive Delusions, How Everyday People Catch STDs, and we've been discussing the physician's role in preventing sexually transmitted diseases. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts our entire library. Thank you for listening.